Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. If you feel able on this slanty ground, please stand with me as we listen to God's word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted and went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at this time, uh, let me dismiss children ages three and four for a right-sized portion of the gospel for them. Uh, over here, Pastor Jeff, to, with the, the hand waving. Uh, if you uh, remember masks, that would be great. Um, they'll be doing ch children's church there. Um, let me pray for uh, both us and for our kids as they, as they go off to look at the scriptures together. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the things that we've already sung and 
confessed uh, this morning together. And we thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. We pray now for ourselves and for our little ones that as we engage your word that, that you would work in our hearts, that we would sense your presence and your activity in our lives and in this world, that wherever we are this morning, that you would draw us nearer to yourself, that you would lead us to Jesus Christ and to see the beauty and the glory of Christ more from having spent this time together this morning in your word and in praise and prayer and all that, all that you've called us to do this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, some of you know about my background, uh, some of you may not, from about the age of 20 until 28, I was in some sort of theological education. Uh, so starting off at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and then Wheaton Grad School, and then Westminster in Philadelphia. Uh, so that's like lots of classes, as you can imagine, lots of professors, lots of reading assignments and articles and books. And in all of that time, one of the most transformative courses I ever took was a course at Westminster Seminary taught by David Powelson, and it was called Dynamics of Biblical Change. This whole course was about what it means to know the living God and to do life as if the living God is real and to be changed by the living God and to know biblically what it looks like. Like, how do we change? Uh, one of the first assignments in that course was to read an article that Dr. Paulson wrote on Psalm 119. So this is my verbal footnote to basically almost everything else that I'm going to say this morning because so much of it comes from both that class and that article. If you've been with us this summer, we're in a series in the Psalms called Experiencing God. And what we're really trying to do is learn from the Psalms this summer what it looks like to have a real living faith in God in our real lives, experiencing God in our real lives. So at the outset, I want to acknowledge something that I think about Psalm 119. There are some things that are hard for us to engage the psalm. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, you know that it's long, like really, really, really long. Like I did not print the whole thing I think it takes about 20 minutes to read the whole thing. It is 176 verses. It is by far the longest chapter in the Bible. It's longer than the entire book of Ephesians. But unlike, you know, Ephesians or other books of the New Testament that might have a real nice thematic kind of uh, arrangement or what appears to us a very logical arrangement, Psalm 119 doesn't seem to fit that. And so it's hard for us to follow what's going on. Uh, psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. We've seen a couple of these this summer, I think, already. What that means is it follows this pattern uh, where each section begins with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So a lot of acrostic psalms have 22 verses corresponding to the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, where each verse starts with a different letter. So A, Aleph in Hebrew, B, Bet in Hebrew, all the way through to the end. Psalm 119 does this, but it gives eight verses to each letter. So, you know, just think about writing this. In English, that would be like you writing eight lines of poetry 
for A, every line starting with A, and then another eight lines of poetry for B, and so on until you're like through the whole thing. To me, that sounds like a really nasty assignment from an English professor that just does not have enough to do. And while it's a really incredible accomplishment, this poetic feature is kind of lost on us, and the sheer volume of content in this psalm can make it difficult for us to grab a hold of. But if we were to try to just answer the question, what is this psalm about? If you look at Psalm 119 and you were to tally what are the most frequently used words in the whole psalm, what you would find are these words. I, me, my, you, yours. David Powelson in that article in Psalm 119, he writes this. Psalm 119 is the most extensive I-to-you conversation in the Bible. It is the most lengthy personal prayer in the Bible, where I, your servant, talk to you, Lord, who speak and act, whom I need and I love. Psalm 119 is where you go to learn utter and utterly appropriate honesty It's here that you learn to open your heart to what matters. Here you are candid about your deepest ongoing struggles. You cry out in need. You shout for joy. In this psalm, you hear what it means to be human in an honest relationship with the person who made humanness in his image. To sum it up, what you get to hear in Psalm, one, in Psalm 119, is what it sounds like when the living and active God, his living and active word is alive in a human heart. So what I'd like you to think about this morning, think of this psalm like a coronary angiogram. If you don't know what that is, a coronary angi- angiogram is it's this heart test that doctors will use sometimes to see if arteries are br- blocked or narrowed. And so what they do is they inject this dye into your heart and then through an x-ray, they can kind of see what's going on and where there are narrowed arteries, where there is maybe really bad blockage. And this psalm shows us a picture of a healthy, alive heart, a living and active faith toward the living and active God. And so we can ask as we look at this psalm, as we look at the dynamics of what's going on as this man is writing this psalm, where are there places perhaps where we have some blockage? Where our arteries are narrowed? Where we're not really living into the fullness of life with God and knowing him? There are four dynamics that I want us to think about as we look at these few verses that I've printed. And this is really a way to think about the whole of Psalm 119. Uh, These dynamics you can see throughout the whole psalm. Uh, Here here are the four that we're going to think about this morning. First, listening. Second, expressing our struggles. Third, voicing our requests. And finally, fourth, standing in our convictions. We'll spend most of the time thinking about the first one. So first, the dynamic of listening. The writer has listened well to God. 
He has listened to God speak to him in his word. This writer has done exactly what you see in Psalm 1, where it describes a person who has this truly fruitful, happy, and joyful life. Someone who has meditated deeply on the word of God. It's gotten inside of this person. It's, it's rooted this person in something beyond himself. If you want to experience the living and active God, you have to first listen to what he says to us in his word. I remember reading this psalm after becoming a Christian, and I misread it for a long time. And I think some of us might misread and misunderstand this psalm, where it sounds like this writer is just really excited about rules. Like if someone wanted to write a huge A to Z poem about traffic laws, and there's like a disconnect, like, why are you so excited about this? But when you realize what he's talking about, you see that he's not just talking about bare rules or commands, but he's writing about the whole of God's word. And these different terms used to refer to God's word throughout the psalm speak of the richness of God's revelation. So let's consider some of these together as we reflect on on this psalm. Each one of these words gives a slightly different emphasis or feature of God's revelation of himself. So in verse 1, we have God's word described as law, which is not really a great translation in some ways because I think it makes most English readers think these are probably just the things that we're commanded to do or the things we're prohibited, you know, the thou shalls and the thou shall nots. But the word law in Hebrew is Torah, meaning instruction. It's a way not just of talking about God's laws, like say the Ten Commandments, but of the first five books of the Bible. The emphasis being that through the Torah of God, we are instructed, we are directed, we are taught. Verse 2, God's revelation is described as his testimonies. A term that's meant to remind us that it is the Lord himself who speaks to us in his word, almost as if like we had a witness box and God is in that box telling us what is true. Verse 5, you see this term, statutes. And this word is related to another Hebrew word that means something like to engrave. And we're we're reminded here of the permanence of God's word. Verse 43, you see the term rules or sometimes translated judgments, emphasizing God as the all-wise, just judge who evaluates rightly and fairly. Verse 45, you see this term precepts. And this is a term that emphasizes the particulars, like the details of God's word, that it's not just vague instruction, love people, but it's detailed and specific. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, uh, perhaps there are parts that you've read that you feel like, wow, this is just a little too detailed. I really don't need to know all of these things. But God gives loving instruction and the details matter. Like if you've ever had someone watch your children or your beloved pet, you leave detailed instruction because the details matter. And finally, we see this word used throughout, commandments. 
emphasizing and reminding us of the authority of God and that his authority is good. Listening to all the richness of God's word, this writer claims this is actually the place of freedom, which is so different from how we think. Look at verses 1 and 2. God's word shaping and guiding a person's life. This is the blessed life. This is the happy life. In verse 45, he says that he walks in a wide place, meaning this is the place of freedom, living into what we were made for by seeking after God's word and his precepts. In verse 47, he speaks of delighting in and loving God's commandments because they are good and they are for our good. What I want you to see is this is a picture of someone who has listened really deeply. He's listened to the story of creation. He's listened to the promises of God. He's listened to God's own testimony of how to know him and how to live in relationship with him. He's listened and he's taken in the permanence of God's promises and the authority of God and the practical detail of what it means to know and love God and to love your neighbor, and to live in community, and to do justice and righteousness. He has listened. And all of this listening makes all the difference in the world because it's out of his listening that he knows how to speak. I mean, consider just the length and complexity of this prayerful meditation It is astounding when you think about it. I mean, none of us would probably want to go home and write this psalm. What has led him to do this? He's listened. Think about what this means for us. We truly do not know how to speak to God unless we first listened to him. You may know, for example, how important it is for babies and toddlers and little kids to hear lots of words as they grow up that the more words they hear from parents and from others around them, the more that they will be set up to communicate well themselves. By hearing words and vocabulary used every day, little ones are growing in their language skills. They're like sponges who are sucking up all of this language. And it often takes years at times before they're able to richly communicate themselves. And various studies have been done showing the difference between children who listen to a rich vocabulary versus children that don't. Like some kids hear up to 21,000 words a day and some only hear like 6,000 or sometimes even less. There was a study done out of Ohio State University comparing the difference between children who are read too frequently, and by this study that means five children's books a day, versus children who are never read to. These kids, when they go into kindergarten, those who have been read too frequently have heard 1.4 million more words than the kids who were never read to. And if we can appreciate and we can imagine the significance of hearing rich communication and the necessity of it, if you're going to be able to communicate yourself, then we can draw some pretty straight lines to what we see in Psalm 119. How important it is for us to listen to God if we're going to know him and speak to him. So let me just ask the obvious question. How are you doing with listening to God? There are 
all sorts of things. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list that I'm about to give. There are all sorts of things that can make it difficult for us to do this. Many of us are busy. And so sometimes it's just a time thing. And as a parent of young kids, like, I get it. Others of us, maybe it's that we're less familiar with the Bible. And so it just feels daunting and overwhelming. Or maybe you're someone who you're not even sure that you want to believe the Bible. Like you're not convinced that it's credible. Let me say, especially if you're one of those last two categories, you know, you're new to reading the Bible or you're not really sure you want to believe it. Find someone who listens to scripture, who does believe the Bible and read it with them. And if you don't know anybody like that, please come talk to me or talk to someone else in this church. Whatever the reason or struggle that we might have, I'd like you to consider what we've already thought about and perhaps what you experienced as you heard this psalm read. Do you want a rich relationship with God? Do you want a relationship with God that is deeply personal and relevant to your life? Do you want a relationship with God where God feels real and he feels involved in the details of your life and it feels like he matters? Then we have to find ways, wherever we are, whatever state of life we're in, we have to find ways to listen. Because all the other dynamics flow from first having listened. I want to think about the next two dynamics together. So the second was expressing our struggles, and then the third is voicing our requests. So having listened well, we we speak to God about what troubles us, about our struggles. And there are those troubles that are outside of us. The writer mentions these. He talks about afflictions and evils. Like if you look, just some of the examples, verse 67 and 92 he speaks of his affliction. Verse 42, he speaks of him who taunts me. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Right? These are evils from the outside that are pressing in on him. But there are also evils from within. Sometimes explicitly these are mentioned, sometimes these are more implicitly But the writer mentions these struggles in himself. Verse 176, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. His request to God throughout the psalm shows how much he recognizes that he needs God to intervene in his life. He prays, verse 5, Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Because he knows that apart from God's help, that is not going to be true. He prays in verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge because he knows apart from God's help, he would be foolish. In verse 175, 176, he prays, let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. Seek your servant. And what's really interesting about all that you see in this psalm with this dynamic of expressing our struggles and voicing our requests is that whether the evils and the brokenness is something like from the outside that's like crushing him or whether it's this internal thing, the struggles don't turn him inward. 
his situation and the broken parts of his life don't turn him away from God. His shame and his guilt doesn't put him in the place of just feeling angry or hopeless or depressed. His suffering doesn't cripple his hope. He's not stuck in his own head. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever had that experience where you're like in a never-ending monologue, an argument with yourself, a debate in your own brain where whatever is going on inside or outside of you, you're just like rolling it over and over and over and over and over again and you're just this anxious, stressed out mess. That is not this psalmist because he is crying out to a person. He's speaking to the Lord. He's not stuck in himself. Let me ask you, what do you do with the hard things in your life? What do you do with the evil and the brokenness that you experience out in the world or in relationships or the things outside of you? What do you do with the brokenness and at times the evil, the, the pull that you feel inside your own heart? This man brings his real life, his real experience to God. And... He voices his requests, some of which I've already mentioned, but he says things like verse 94, save me, verse 41. In fact, if I've lost you at all, just turn over to verse 41 for a moment and look at specifically what he says. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. What I want you to just notice is that as he prays, he expects God to act. I need your steadfast love to come to me because there's a situation right now. The writer expects God to act. And not in an inappropriate way like, God, you have to answer me on my timing according to what I want. But he lives with an active expectation. Like if you could imagine it, he lives, in a sense, on his tippy toes toward the Lord. Like, he's not just standing there saying, Lord, your sovereign will be done, and I'm just going to sit here in all of this. He is anticipating that the Lord is going to speak, and he's going to act, and he's going to help, and he's going to intervene because he's alive and because he's active. Do you speak this way toward God? Do you live with that sort of anticipation on your tippy toes, anticipating that God is alive, that he answers prayer, that he is real, that he cares about the details of your life? The fourth dynamic that we see, the writer is standing in his convictions. We've seen he listens well, he expresses his struggles, he voices his requests, and he stands in, in his convictions. Throughout the psalm, he bluntly states his intentions. If you would, look at verses 44 through 48. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Verse 46, I will also speak your testimony before kings. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Now, this would almost sound arrogant. You know, that kind of posture of like, 
Let me tell you, God, how much I'm going to do for you. It would almost sound arrogant if there weren't all of these other sections where he so openly talks about his sin and his struggles and his need. This is proclaiming and speaking to God, saying, I'm committed to these things. I will follow you. Lord, this is who I am because of you. And this is who I want to be. Do we speak to God like this? Or perhaps, are we afraid to believe that God's really at work? Are we afraid to believe that we can actually change? And so we don't actually say, I'm going to do this, Lord, help me. It's an expression of faith in the grace and the mercy of God to say things like this. Throughout the psalm, this man also stands in his convictions about who God is. He confesses who God is and who God is for him throughout the psalm. Verse 65, he says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. Verse 68, You are good and do good. Verse 90, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Very simply, and perhaps my favorite, verse 94, I am yours. In the midst of trials, afflictions, evils coming at him, evils rising up within him, this is a man who is rooted in who he is and who God is for him. And the beautiful thing about Psalm 119, when you consider all these dynamics at work, is that they are not linear and neatly ordered. It's actually a lot more like life which is why if you read it, it kind of feels like, wow, where is this going? Because the writer praises God for his word and then he's crying out for help and then he's confessing his faith and then he's confessing his sin and it's this constant back and forth dialogue prayer with the living God who he knows and he believes and he trusts and in a sense, it's like he's saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's think about some application. What might you do in light of this psalm? We really want this series in the psalms to help us to help shape us how we experience God in real life. And so I'd like to invite you this week to read this psalm. It's long, so take your time or maybe, you know, make sure you're making some progress, but read this psalm this week and let this psalm guide you in your prayers. I would encourage you to take one aspect of your present struggle, whether that is something outside of you that just feels like it's crushing you, or whether it's something inside of you that is just disturbing you. Take whatever that is and read this psalm and let this psalm direct you in prayer. And one final thing that I have to just mention because this psalm, like all, all of the psalms and all of scripture, is meant to point and lead us to Jesus. The extraordinary thing for us to maybe just sit with for a moment is that the richness of, of this psalm and the kind of fully alive faith in God and alive heart toward God that we see in this psalm, that in Jesus, we actually have more resources to do this than the psalmist did. Because we don't only have the richness of God's word, 
we have Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. The revelation of God in a person. The instruction of God embodied and lived out in a person. The wisdom of God. I mean, right, you read the Gospels and you want to know what the precepts of the Lord look like. You want to know what intricate detail of love looks like. And you just watch Jesus Christ live and move and speak and act and listen. Psalm 119 leads us to see Jesus who perfectly embodies a life and a heart fully alive to God. And Jesus knows what it's like to face hostility and evils surrounding him. He knows what it's like to live in this world with the struggles and the temptations and the frailties of being a human being in this world with a body. And because he knows all that, the book of Hebrews tells us that he is a merciful and faithful high priest, that he lives to make intercession for you. So when you pray Psalm 119, it's not just even you praying, but you are praying and Jesus is praying for you. The embodiment of Psalm Psalm 119 is in heaven for you. It is for these reasons that we can say the words that we said in our confession of faith this morning, which in many ways is just teasing out that one verse, I am yours, of saying, this is my comfort, I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. He watches over me, he cares for me. By his spirit, he makes me willing and ready to live for him. Therefore, I will live for him. Let me invite us, as is our practice, to spend a few moments of time in prayer having heard God's word. This might be a time for us to just confess uh, the ways that we've sinned this past week, that we feel that, we know that, we have distinct memories of things this last week that burden us. Speak those things to the Lord. It might be that we really need the Lord's help. And so let's cry out to him together. I'll give us a few moments of silence to do that and then I'll lead us in prayer.